From our headquarters in New York City, this is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking to leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guest this week is Dave Dawson, the founder and CEO of the Urban Electric Company. Dave started the business in 2002. It's since grown into a powerhouse of modern American craftsmanship, employing over 200 people to make a wide array of custom lighting fixtures, all in a former Navy yard in Charleston, South Carolina. I spoke with Dave about why he's never sold through showrooms, why his company is putting out its own magazine, and how recession or no recession, he's betting on good design. Before we get started, a quick word from our sponsor. Inspired by the reinvigorating energy created from spending quality time at home, Universal Furniture is thrilled to introduce a fresh perspective on home furnishings. We've partnered with Australian model and businesswoman Miranda Kerr, a global style icon, to create the new Miranda Kerr Home Collection. It captures Miranda's ideals of tranquility, authenticity, and beauty. This timeless and practical collection debuts at High Point Market this fall. You can be among the first to experience Miranda's refreshing take on home furnishings at Universal Furniture Showroom, located at 101 South Hamilton Street. To learn more, visit universalfurniture.com slash home. And now, on with the show. What I want to talk about first Dave, is that I've noticed that you sort of gloss over, oh, yeah, I was a lawyer, and oh, yeah, I had some business in San Francisco that I sold and whatever and moved to Charleston, and you want us all to start with Charleston, but I want to understand a little bit better Sure. This other life. Well, it was definitely a uh, an unorthodox path to what I'm doing. Um, like you say, practiced law, um, general corporate litigation, construction litigation, uh, moved to San Francisco to help my family with a small high-tech company that we had. And uh, So when you say your family, so who? My brother and my dad. Okay, your brother and your dad had the a The company small was high-tech. based in Ohio, actually. Okay. And I wanted to move to San Francisco for personal reasons. And so my dad, I was in my late 20s at the time, my dad talked me into, he said, if you're going to move there, rather than going there and taking the California bar, why don't you come and help the company for a little while? Which is what I did. Okay. Met my wife through that whole experience, which was a huge bonus, uh, and ended up, uh, we sold the company to um, another big company out there, uh, okay. Cobalt Systems, which oh, right. ended up, I don't know if you're familiar with them, yeah. they got bought by Sun Microsystems say, within sure. about six or eight weeks after we sold to Cobalt, so we ended up going, I mean, uh, this company was small, 20 people, okay. so I ended up going from a small family company of 20 people to being employed in by Sun Microsystems of 45,000 people at the time, I think. Yeah. Not my gig. Got out of that as soon as our contracts were, we were able to. Okay. And then Jen and I picked Charleston completely on a whim, had no idea what we were going to do when we got there, just decided that we wanted to live there. Um, it's a beautiful city. It's a beautiful city. Reminds we, us we a lot, in, in weird ways, reminds us a lot of San Francisco, a lot of great bars and restaurants and the water and kind of a lot of soul and grit there. And so we decided we wanted to live there, and we would make a plan after we got there, and Urban Electric became that plan. And, and so the, the story I've heard you tell is you, you're, you sort of buy a, a house that you're fixing up, right? And, yep. and, and you couldn't sort of find everything that you were looking for in the way of lighting. And That's right. And, and probably very, very classic small business mm-hmm. story. We moved, uh, when we moved, we bought uh, an old Charleston single, 1860s Charleston single, which is the very 
classic Charleston architectural style. Mm. And this was the first real grown-up house that we had had. And we were renovating it. And lighting in particular seemed to be a problem for us on the house. Just wasn't anything special. Mm. So we um, made a note of that and then came across uh, a retail company um, that was selling some really cool stuff. And we actually started our business as a branch of that retail business. When we decided that we wanted to get out of doing retail, initially we said, we're going to design our own lighting. We're going to get somebody else to make it for us. And we're going to get somebody in the United States to make it for quality reasons and also just because for practical reasons we didn't have any volume. So we started trying to find somebody uh, in the United States to make lighting. And this was in the early 2000s. And it was a really interesting time in American manufacturing that I think a lot of people have kind of forgotten about. Um, this was a particularly low point. This was when... Where, where so much manufacturing was leaving. The leaving. US. I mean, yeah, everything. Going overseas. Overseas. In, in, I mean, yeah. it was not just that it was going, but that every the zeitgeist was that this was going to... This is, you know, American manufacturing is done. We don't need to make any more, right? So another country can make, we can consume. Right. It was this terribly unfortunate notion. We were just going to be consumers. We were just going to consume, let everyone else do some of yes. these other kinds of things. Yes. You know, textile mills where, where, oh. where I live throughout the Carolinas, closing left and right. And the response we got was, you know, what you might expect. And just people said, no, we're not doing that anymore. We're out of business or we've sent that overseas. And it caused me to realize that, you know, maybe there's an opportunity here for somebody to make one-off custom lighting because that's essentially what we were looking to do and no one was doing it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you can take that two different conclusions from that. One is that it's, there's no market there. <laughs> there was a signal being sent Th to you. That's right. Maybe this is a really bad idea and yeah. nobody, else is, nobody else wants to do it uh, and you should stay away. Or I thought, well, maybe there's an opportunity here. You eventually, you, you do buy this small lantern yep. company, right? Right, right. And so bought bought the small company. Um, like I said, we we were a couple of craftsmen. I I was learning how to make lights at that point. Jen was helping to make. Jen was doing a lot of our finish work. She's a really good artist. So she was doing a lot of that. So and what uh, was and what was Jen's background? What was she was uh, um, had been in high tech marketing. That's how we came across each other. She grew up in the Bay Area. Um, so for her. The American South was completely new, and had, she had no background in design either. Uh, but it was just that we were interested in it, thought this would be a lot of fun, and one step, you know, kept taking one step after another after another, um, and found ourselves completely in love with the industry, completely in love with craft and craftsmanship um, and, and product design and all the things that go along with it, and here... 17, 18 years later, I can't really imagine doing doing anything else. Yeah. yeah. So much of, of what you've built is a is a is a culture for your for your company and, mm -hmm. and you've been very focused on on that. Yeah. Uh, training and developing people and um, even just this whole uh, sort of your your internal motto, you know, uh, about not being satisfied right. and right and right. always being always proud, proud and, always proud, never satisfied. Yeah, is our internal motto. And so, what what informed you about some of that thinking? It's that's a great question because I don't think that that was something that I came to right away. Um, I learned that on very much on the job as um, learning how to interact with employees, learning how to motivate, learning how to um, understand their perspective. Um, as, a, as a business owner, um, especially in a small business, you've got everything on the line, you're all in, and sometimes it's hard to understand if an employee isn't 
quite there, you mm. know. Um, and I had to, it just took me some years to really understand um, the power of a good culture. And not that we had a bad culture early on, but it was it wasn't purposeful. Um, and over the over several years, I started to really realize the, every company's going you're going to have a culture. It's not a matter of you know you're going to build a good culture or not build a build a culture or build, not build a culture. Every company is going to have a culture. It's a question of whether you make it a purposeful, constructive, uh, progressive culture, or whether you allow something else to take hold that's not. Um, not beneficial to your business and not something that you want to be a part of. Well, and you've spoken very specifically and, 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 and written as well about going through the transition of wanting to be the sort of popular boss, to, yeah. right? To, right, right, to, to right. being the boss that people can trust and know has sort of their best interests and the company's best interests and sort of the, the difference between those, those two things. That was also one of those realizations for me. Early on, you know, we would, I would spend a lot of time with employees outside of work and nothing, not that there's anything wrong with that. Uh, mm. But I was really looked at, I, all of these early employees were friends and I wanted to be popular with them and I wanted them to really like me, um, which is probably, it's just a normal sure. thing. Um, but what I realized over time, especially as we grew, uh, you're not, that's maybe not the most important thing as a business leader. Um, the most important thing I felt like was that they felt respect, they felt um, supported, and they felt that the company was fair. I think that's, mm. that's more important than being popular is that they trust your decisions, that they trust your motives and your intentions, and um, because you're never going to get, you know, every decision you you make is not going to be the most popular one. I mean, now we've got almost 300 people and 275 people in the company, and there's almost no way that any almost any decision I make or uh, leadership is making is going to be 100 percent universally popular with the company. Mm. Um, but I've, I've told this story before. I mean, a great example, a number of years ago, for many, many years, we allowed all of our craftsmen to wear headphones. It was just part of, it was actually kind of part of the culture. Everybody really enjoyed that. They would come into work, put their headphones on, and then start working. And um, we realized that was a little bit of a safety concern our insurance insurance company, company kind of raised that insurance company issue. said this yeah. is not a great idea <laughs> um and so um so we knew we were going to have to address it and i knew it was not going to be popular yeah um and so but the way we we went about addressing it was we had a lot of conversations we um explored alternatives we made sure that everybody understood if we were going to have to go this route, why. And it wasn't a popular decision. It was actually very unpopular. I'm sure. And, uh, and yet everybody, I think, ultimately supported it because they recognized that the company was doing it with good intentions. So, And you sort of talked it through with them and they at least felt as though they were part of the decision that's right process right and and f factory floors are factory floors are hard to manage on, on a host of levels yeah and, and especially in an environment where there is a factory floor and then there are the offices and executive suites and there's the full-time barista and there's all these other things going on it's yeah. right it's a lot of different things that you have to, to manage and that's another thing that I think is a very important thing for a for a more modern or progressive thinking manufacturer is to try to make sure that those barriers don't creep up there are obviously like you just said there are naturally occurring things that can get in the way of that cohesiveness mm. people are doing you know if you look around the company that we have 
there's so many people doing so many different things. They've got a, a huge diverse diversity of backgrounds and opinions and skill sets. And because we're so vertically integrated, there's so we're doing so much. Everything from you know creative to engineering to crafting to um, supply chain, whatever. Um, and so I think it is also imperative for a company that's that diverse to make sure that there's a there's a universally accepted feeling that everybody's on the same team that um, there's not a there's not a front office and a back office the, to me the the solution to that is for every just again just to make sure that everybody realizes everybody's critical to the to the um, to the success of the company, everybody's playing a different part. Um, mixing and merging those worlds as much as we can. We do happy hours, uh, you know, that we try to make sure everybody's going to lots and lots of different cross-department celebrations, things like that, because people will go into silos otherwise. Yeah, no, no, no. It, it, it's challenging, and, and I know that it's something that you give a lot of thought to. And I, well, I was going to say one other yeah. thing. I think that's really important in that is that people. Uh, again feel like what they're doing is really valued and that's one of the like we mentioned the cafe so several years ago it it had always been my dream to have a really cool cafe with a barista and just like you would in a high-tech world or a um, an advertising agency or something like that and because the reason I, I really was you know, really wanted to do that was because I felt like it sent a message to our craftsmen that what they do is just as important and just as valued and just as celebrated as a software engineer at Google uh, who has this really cool break room that's designed and it's got, you know, they can go and get a, you know, fantastic cup of espresso or whatever. I wanted that sort of subtle message to our craftsmen to feel the same way. So let's, let's talk about sales. Okay. Uh, Okay. Because so you and I were starting to get into this conversation the other day about some of the decisions you made early on for your distribution channel, right? And this notion of you sort of going directly to designers versus right. opening up opening up showrooms. Right, right. Tell me, tell me what some of your early thinking was around that. You know, we, uh, as I said to you the other day, I mean, we had some, we had one huge advantage that a lot of other companies, older companies, did not, which is that we started in the era of the internet. Mm. Uh, e-commerce was certainly not what it was today, but at least the internet as a as a marketing tool was coming of age in the early 2000s, and so that gave us an option at, at, to consider potentially avoiding the more typical path in the high-end design industry, which would be a multi-line rep showroom in a design center. Mm -hmm. Again, I came from outside the industry. I really didn't have any background in it. And so I looked at it, maybe I had a fresh perspective or just a clean slate, I guess. I could look at it and see, well, what makes sense right now? Sure. Um, And early on, we were very tempted to sell our stuff through design through rep showrooms but i thought we didn't have the margin to give up uh, off of our trade pricing and that was a accidental um i don't know just a sort of an accidental analysis Mm. that turned out to be really good for us and and we should explain for people who are listening that might not be familiar so typically a multi-line showroom these days particularly the larger ones they want they want 30 percent 25 30 i've heard even potentially more than that exactly and and off of off of a trade off Off of of a a trade price price. exactly right and and we didn't have that so that that was that was my margin you know right so that we just didn't really have an option. Uh, 
or we thought. So we said we would just forge our own way, start developing relationships directly with clients, even though that was a really, and thinking back on it now, a really, really hard hill to climb because mm. we were a four-person workshop in Charleston, South Carolina. Right. You know, I didn't have relationships in New York or L.A. or San Francisco. Right. I and, didn't and, have, and nobody on the team originally did, right? Nobody on the nobody did. Nobody okay. knew who Urban Electric was. Nobody had ever heard of Urban Electric. Right. And so, again, a bit foolhardy. Maybe that's the naivete is, you know, the mother of invention. But we said, well, um, you know, we don't know any better. And so we're just going to, we're just going to, the, the decision was, well, it might be a harder road to but we are going to forge relationships one at a time mm. and we're going to um, get out on the road and you know show people what we're doing try to bring people to Charleston anytime somebody's visiting Charleston we'll try to bring them through our shop any way we can um, and that's what we started for the first year or two mm. till we got a little bit of cash scraped together to be able to advertise and our first advertising was in Southern Accents, uh, Rest in Peace, which, yes. is a, which, was a, which was a great, Sadly. it was a great magazine. Sadly to see. Um, but that was our lifeline out for a number of years. Um, and then we, we, we got cool enough, we thought, to advertise in El Decor. Mm. I remember when we thought we were cool enough um, to do that. And then that, you know, so advertising, you know, basically, again, direct messaging, direct relationships. Mm. Um, and then what we, what we realized over time was it became much more purposeful much more strategic as I mentioned to you the other day if you look at those the percentage of what a multi-line showroom requires for a discount um, that's essentially a cost that's a that's a sales cost if you're going to sell through them Um, and what we realized was that we could for substantially less than 30 percent we could run our entire sales operation And I mean our outside sales team, our inside sales team, my advertising budget, my entertaining budget, my VP of sales, everything. The the downside of that, of course, is that we're taking on all the risks. All of those expenses are on us whether we sell anything. Right. Um, and of course, in a multi-line showroom, you know you're only paying for success. So um, we it was a perhaps a risky strategy, and uh, I wouldn't say it's the right choice for everybody. Mm. But we're very happy to have done that um, because now we've got amazing relationships with thousands of designers, direct relationships. Um, We have um, no one else to answer to uh, in terms of our uh, supply chain, I guess, if you will, but our our distribution chain, I should say. There's Mm. really no distribution levels. We can get our message exactly the way we want our message to be presented directly to the folks who we want to talk to. When they're talking to us, that's a very um, it's a much better situation. I mean, I always joke when somebody calls Urban and asks for a status of of a job, the person on the phone's like, "I'll go ask Susanna, the craftsman, what? Hey, when are you going to be finished with that light? Yeah, it's not a. I'm going to pick up the phone right the and floor call another and... vendor who's going to call a, a, a sure. factory overseas. Um, and I think you know, especially in the very high touch, made to order, custom world that we live in. That's an advantage mm. for sure. There were times when you when you thought, oh, boy, it would sure be a lot easier to get our name out there if we were in some of these big showrooms. For sure. Right? I mean, I think there were we were tempted um, any number of times over the years when people would express interest. And again, it goes back to a lot of that was we had zero. No one knew of us one way or another, good right. or bad, and we had no you know 
credibility. And yeah. if someone were going to represent us um, who did have that credibility, that would be a really important stamp. And so that was very, you know, even apart from all the economics that I just described, mm. we were still tempted. And now as we look to future growth, you know, it puts us in a different position in terms of the kinds of decisions we have to make. Again, we're only accountable to our design clients. That's who we care about. Um, and we're, we always think through the lens of what makes their world easier, mm. what makes their interactions with us more elegant. Um, and, and, you know, and, and how do we solve for that? We're not trying, we don't have to worry about, um, a design showroom or multi-line showrooms or um, even, you know, multi-line rep, reps, sales mm. reps, any of that. Every, everybody that we, you know, all of our outside team is completely dedicated to us full time. And uh, how, how big is your outside team? Small. I mean, we've got five, six people okay. that cover basically everywhere from London to Los Angeles. Right. Yeah. Okay. And they, I mean, so so much of what you seem to have uh, had tremendous success doing is bringing people to Charleston. Yeah. Right. right. And sharing the, the the sort of magic of the yes. the Navy Yard and and the where you do business. That was, I mean, eight or ten years ago, we said, "What is the best?" Again, you're we're struggling to get the word out. Mm. We don't have a big megaphone, and we have no partners in big cities, right? So we're right. in this. We're a tiny company in a tiny city, off the grid a bit from the normal design track. And how do we get the word out? And um, we we have, I think, a beautiful factory, and it's an old. You know, uh, now we actually have three. Um, old warehouses on the on the navy yard all built before 1940 and um, they're they're beautiful and with passionate men and women building product by hand it's kind of this great it's exactly the billboard exactly the story we want to tell but very hard to translate yeah out and so we said well what if we turn that on its head and just bring people here well will people come to charleston will that you know and we said well let's just try again let's just take all the excuses away We'll pay for their trips. We'll, you know, we will entertain them. All they have to do is come, uh, spend a little bit of time with us, enjoy Charleston. And that's been probably perhaps one of the most successful things we've done. Designers get a, we get to forge deeper relationships with them. Mm. It's a really, it's a great fun opportunity for us to spend time with them offline, dinner, drinks, or what have you. Um, they get to see what we're doing. They get to meet the men and women behind the behind the craft and they come away i think with a greater appreciation for um the type of work we do and and the product and then they go back to this you know wherever they're from and become some somewhat we hope evangelists for us a little bit of brand ambassadors right because they're able to tell the story that they just got themselves Mm -hmm. hey i was there I met these folks. You should see this place. You should see this place, right? The, the work they're doing people is incredible. That are there, exactly. Right? right. Yeah. It was it was called the Golden Golden Ticket, ticket right? We, right. That's the yeah, uh, was, the uh, Willy Wonka reference, right. right? So we literally send an envelope with a beautifully embossed calligraphied invitation, um, something of a golden ticket. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it seems over the years that you've been uh, an innovative marketer. You you just seem to have this very sort of fun spirit, and and um, you seem to want to sort of put on a on a show for mm-hmm. for people, right? And as yeah. you were just saying, like you you feel like your your headquarters is sort of one of your your best assets and you want to share it with people where did your sort of marketing sort of sense come from and what what's been driving that it's a fun story it's a Mm. pretty easy story to tell i don't i don't i wouldn't claim that we're 
you know, it's nice that you say that you think we are really good at it. I think that we're just, it's, it's, it's kind of an easy, it tell, the story tells itself in a lot of ways. Um, our website's become an ever increasingly important way to tell that story. Um, and we just last year completely redid our website to build in much more um, storytelling devices. Mm-hmm. We actually, you know, a lot more background stuff, but also telling stories about the product more, um, things like that. In the last couple of years, we've made a real concerted effort to start developing more and more, uh, for lack of a better word, what everybody calls content. Mm. So, you know, cr- produce a lot more of our own Content, so we have really scaled back, um, almost completely eliminated our print advertising. So that's just what I was going to get to. Yeah. So I mean, earlier you were talking about Southern accents and El Decor, right. and now you've actually even created your own magazine. So, and, yep, right, right, right. Uh, which is beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Uh, right, yeah. very powerful. Uh, but but obviously, it, it's a clear indication that you're you're print advertising budget has, has largely gone we away. took we took it it's not we're, we're not uh it's unfortunately it isn't saving us any money in this movie <laughs> right. uh i thought perhaps it would <laughs> it hasn't but it's a shift uh of the uh, from the priority being print advertising to the priority now being telling our story again directly we have a this is this you would see this as a thread that runs through urban electric in so many ways we have a bent toward doing things ourselves as much as we can right right? and the less filters the better not again not that advertising is not still critical and if i had all the money i'd be doing both but if i have to choose at this point we love the opportunity to tell our story um our own way the the current which is the the book that we just put out this year for the first time and and how is that getting distributed the current who gets the who gets the current at the moment um just Clients, uh, okay. several thousand clients. It's a pretty small. Okay, um, we've kind of made a strategic decision that we'd like to grow that distribution a bit. Um, so I think next year we're going to plow into that. Um, we're going to find opportunities to distribute that um, in other ways. We're not sure yet, but um, how often do you see the the current coming out? Once a year. Once a year. It's a, so it's, it's, it was by far the most ambitious thing we've ever done in terms of marketing. It's pretty far. ambitious. Yeah. And, it, 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 um, and if you've seen it, it's 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 beautiful. Um, Your PR team made sure I had multiple copies. Good. Yes. But so they're doing. She's they're doing, doing her. Job. They're doing a good job. Um, but but you know it, it's. Um, I'm more excited about that on the marketing side. Mm. I'm more excited about that than anything we've done in years. Uh, you know, the uh, and next year is because you think it just does such a good job of telling your story. Yeah, and, and I mean, yeah, right. We have yeah. we have um, this really fantastic opportunity, as all brands do. But we have the again. I think makers are in a really good spot. Um, we talk all the time about disruptions in the industry, whether it be you know uh, design centers or magazines and those are certainly you know trends to watch makers are in a really nice place in that whole conversation because we have a fantastic story to tell and we are producing product that hopefully people want right attending high point market this fall be sure to visit universal to the trades designer lounge Located inside Universal Furniture's showroom at 101 South Hamilton Street, the Designer's Lounge was created to answer designers' needs during High Point Market. Featuring over 2,000 square feet of space, the Designer's Lounge offers Wi-Fi, snacks, beverages, workspace, and charging stations to help get you organized between appointments. Now, the Designer's Lounge isn't all about work. In need of a quick hair or makeup touch-up? Come by and visit our Glam Squad for a beauty refresh or stop by for a cocktail pick-me-up whenever the mood strikes. Learn more about the Universal 
to the Trades Designer Lounge at universalfurniture.com slash designers lounge. And now, on with the show. You've always talked about the fact that you recognize you're, you're not the least expensive alternative, right? right? So you, right. you've got this higher cost structure. Manufacturing in the U.S. is still expensive relative to having it made in Vietnam or overseas. Right. But you've been able to obviously build a, a very successful business in, in, in spite of that. What do you think has, has been the secret to what you've been able to do? Well, I, I think it comes in a couple of things. One is you have to really focus on value. So you still have to, I, I never believe that as an American company, we can go to American clients and say, hey, I'm an American, you're an American. That's going to be enough. B- buy from me, right? Yeah, you understand American. we're really expensive and right. it's, maybe it's not worth it, but we're both Americans. I just don't think that, that, that right. doesn't cut it, right? Yeah. So you still have to be providing value. For us, You know, so much of that is around the customization, around the quality, around the service levels, obviously. Those things are really, really important. Now, it, it's more expensive, hmm. um, but we're, it's worth it. Right for the person who can spend that kind of money, we want to make sure that they feel that the product is and the experience is worth it. On the flip side, we have to constantly, I think, in order to stay competitive, because you referenced this. I mean, as an American manufacturer, which we are very committed to, it's something I'm particularly passionate about. But we come into any conversation at a bit of a disadvantage on cost, primarily, hmm. right? Our craftsmen raise families on the wages that they earn, and they've got 401ks that we contribute to, and they've got paid vacation, and we abide by OSHA, and we you know, handle our waste per EPA, et cetera, all good things, but they all come with a cost. Absolutely. And those are all, almost all of those are costs that our foreign competitors don't have. So, you know, in China and India, they're not really dealing with those same things. You know, and you could probably appreciate labor is, is our number one cost. Sure. By far. Absolutely. Um, it's the number one line item on our P&L. So time becomes, you know, yeah. a very, very valuable resource. And so on the what we spend a lot of time focusing on at Urban Electric is how are we spending our time? Are we wasting time or are we th- doing things that are value added? Wasting time is not necessarily goofing off. This was something, this was a conversation that I had to have with craftsmen early on when, you know, this is five years ago when we really started focusing on this, you know, they said, well, I'm not goofing off. I had to do whatever I was doing. So that's not what we mean by wasted time. What we mean is, was whatever you were working on something that our clients value Mm. And we define that as what would our clients pay us more for that? I use this example, you know, would our clients pay us for higher quality? Yes. Let's do more of that. Would they pay us for shorter lead times? Yes. Let's work on that. Would they pay us for more customization options? Let's do more of that. Would they pay us for the hour that we just spent looking for a print set that got lost uh, or remaking a light because we damaged it during the process? Probably not. And so even though that's necessary activity, it's not value-added activity. Mm. And so uh, this is a really, to me, is a very, very critical piece of staying competitive as, American, as an American manufacturer is maximizing how you spend your time. And we're not perfect at this by any means. We're not Toyota or something. We're, we really are a small handmade shop. But it's the mentality that says, how could we find ways to to give our clients more of what they want. You know, it, 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 frankly, I mean, when we started looking at our process, a, a given light might take, um, let's say, six weeks of lead time 
but three days of build time. So we could say, well, we could figure out a way to cut the build time in half and we'd save a day and a half if we could even do that. Mm. Or we could say, what's going on for the other five weeks of that lead time? Usually the answer is non-value added activity. And so that's where we've really focused our time. So is part of that just your supply line is is such that any job that comes in now is is going to have to wait certainly five, six weeks i mean certainly it's you know we're made to order so obviously that's a challenge that we always have we don't carry any inventory everything we do is uh, is made with a client attached to it so and even the the items that are on your website right now that are listed as quick ship, quick ship those are things you know you can get out quicker was, was it three weeks or something uh two weeks as sometimes as short as two weeks okay yeah, t- quick ship is typically in two to four weeks and it's still completely made to order and it's right. still um completely um you know all options are available including picking your own paint colors um but yes to answer your question we are not inventorying any of that mm. product we're just making it in our our challenge is you know if you look at our assortment on our website there's 300 different designs each one of those comes with a gazillion different options as far as paints and nickel and all that other stuff. Um, so that's hundreds of variations. And we don't know from one day to the next what anybody's going to order. Yeah. But the challenge for us is how do you create a predictable path for all of this unknown? You know, every day we wake up to a completely new set of orders. Designers are, you know, here's what they'd like to order today. And so when you're trying to create a quick ship, a very predictable path for that, um, one of the big things that we hit on was cross-training becomes hugely important, and we probably don't have time to talk about all of the details of it, but having a flexible workforce that matches the variability that you offer clients is really, really important. Uh, and that's been the, the primary way that we've been able to tackle quick ship on a made, still on a made-to-order basis. It, it, it's still a completely custom business that you're that you're running and and to your point lead time is still one of your one of your biggest hurdles it, it, yes it probably right. is our biggest hurdle uh you know I, I think our challenge now is or always has been but as i look ahead it's you know how do we continue to take this beautiful handmade product and keep it relevant for the 21st century and in a, in a, in an era when everybody's ordering things you know in New York you're getting things same day off that's, of Amazon yeah so that's the world that we we all live in and um, how it's it's very difficult to do that with our product but we want to try to close that gap as much as we can so yes lead time becomes probably our biggest challenge in staying um, relevant to the market part of that is education Part of that is making sure that clients understand why it might be worth waiting. So it's educating the client. Yes, educating right. or the designer or the, you know, mm-hmm. educating the designer or the designer educating their client. Mm-hmm. But yeah, absolutely saying this is part of why this product is worth waiting for. But at the same time, we also, again, need to be attacking the lead time. Shorter lead time is better than longer lead time. And, um, and so I actually forgot your question. Well, I mean, <laughs> Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's all sort of around that. I mean, it's, it, the, d- does technology start to play a, a bigger role in helping you chip away at lead time? In some ways, some technology, I don't know that there's one technology that 
flips the switch for us in mm. some really really big way and we take lead times you know we cut them dramatically i think it's just lots. robots the, do ro- robots do that uh, I mean, are well they, are they the answer i you know what i everybody um you would think right but, I, uh that, not that i see okay not that I see. Because this is where I could actually see robots really stepping in. <laughs> we don't. I mean, we don't have any. Assembly. I we, just don't feel ha- we don't have. We don't have a any, single robot. We don't in have there. any robots right now. Um, okay. Um, no, and I don't know that our uh, that our work lends itself to that. We're just making things one fixture at a time, exactly the way the designer wants them, and so that's very hard for us to do any other way than what we're doing. How we're doing it. So we've talked about this this direct model. You are now thinking more about showrooms having some pr- other presence. Yes? Not or? not really. Really? Not really. We toy with it. I'm okay. constantly toying with it. Okay. Uh, it, okay. <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> it's not a... I, um, I feel like for years, it was any minute Urban Electric is going to open a showroom in New York. It is. I would, I is. would get that message. I, I would know. say, okay, we better have the story ready to go. I know. Because any minute they're going to open a showroom. They, they were going to open a showroom in L.A., and they were going to open a showroom in New York. Maybe this just goes to show you this, the chaos of our decision-making process. But we... I, this is not happening you're, you're not anytime say, soon not anytime soon not anytime soon i think you know we just expanded wow. we just expanded in charleston and right. took another forty thousand square feet right uh that was a major investment for us um and we're in the throes of absorbing that and getting that online okay um and so show showrooms themselves mm. are a bit on the side burner um the uh, e-commerce is a huge emphasis okay. for us though so that's the big focus yes and again i think that's again plowing into where we already are so investing in our capacity in charleston and our capabilities in terms of production mm. and then investing in our um website infrastructure to make that even more relevant so tell me what that means and and, and tell me what e-commerce means to you in sort of big picture well i mean i think you know we talked about amazon before right and and to me to be quite honest with you the e how e-commerce works for our industry for our company is a little opaque um but what i do know is that all of our designers are interacting with in their personal lives online Mm. um, and they're starting to expect that they have the ability to interact with in their professional in the design world as well Um, we're starting to see obviously younger more digitally native um, designers who've just grown up with the world of the internet there's no expectation otherwise you know they don't ever use the phone they hardly (laughs) use email Um, and so we want to be servicing them and so part of this is even though we're not exactly sure what it means in total what we do know is that this is where the world is this is what our clients expect in other areas of their life and we want to be there Um, you know I don't think that the design industry is immune to in some uniquely immune you know to greater forces in the market mm. um fashion for many years thought it was immune um to some of these forces and it turns out they're not you know and i don't think the design industry is either i don't know that it's this horrible disruptive force either uh with the way we look at e-commerce so you ask what what does e-commerce mean to us given that that's the way that our designers have become used they've become accustomed in every other aspect of their lives we're just trying to give this to them we want to meet them where they are so we want to be offer them the ability to 
be in bed or late night or after we're closed, configure a product, price it, order it, pay for it, check status of an order. Um, that's just be again, able to go through the whole process. Through, go through the whole process. It, it's more about making the process a you know a little more frictionless in the right ways for our clients. I don't know that it changes our business dramatically. I don't know that it changes our marketplace. Dramatically, I think for some other companies it could. I heard your interview with Chad Stark. I think what they're doing is fascinating. Um, I don't know for us if this is a new market so mm. much as it is. It's another way for us to be relevant to the market that's really important to us, which is our design clients. Right. And, and so much like Chad sort of discovered that, yes, there were some consumers who also wanted to participate with the brand in right. some way. He, right. That, that's certainly bound to happen when one establishes an e-commerce website. But it, it, you're right. To, to that point, I mean, his comment was, I think, that he said that they actually didn't discover that it was a big retail um, yeah, market got, for it, them as much right. as it was another tool for designers. And that's the way that we're looking at it for ourselves. Well, and it was also, in, and not just with Chad, but with other companies that have looked at this, Often it's a way to sort of lift the veil, uh, yeah. uh, right, around right. What, what we do. Right. And, and one of the things that has held back the trade business for so many years is this lack of transparency. I agree. I could not agree more. I mean, right. I think this is a, you know, and I think you and I talked about this several months ago, that this is a business that in some ways, oddly, was built on a lack of transparency, at least the supply part of the business. And that's a shame um, because there's so much amazing things happening. There are so many amazing things happening in this industry. Um, but the, the way that it was structured for many, many years created a bit of mistrust um, because pricing wasn't transparent and billing wasn't transparent. Uh, and now the world is very transparent, right? I mean, everything is, you know, out there. And consumers expect that. And I don't think, again, I don't think the design industry is anything, is uniquely immune to that. For instance, we've always had our retail pricing listed on our website forever. Um, uh, I think that's just an important part of clients understanding the value. Giving clients the full picture of the process, whether that's bringing them into the factory and letting mm -hmm. them take pictures and walk all over the place and meet people, um, or being transparent um, in our purchasing process, I think that's a major priority um, for us moving forward, is making sure that clients feel very connected to the entire process. So we, we talked a little bit about the, the Makers Alliance and what you've been putting together. Yeah. Tell, me, tell me a little bit more about that. Tell our listeners. So about that's, about that. Makers Alliance is something that I'm really excited about. Yeah. This is something in the last year and a half I've kind of taken on as a bit of a, uh, of a side passion project. The maker, the, the people who design and make and supply product to the high-end design industry is a fairly niche, disaggregated group of people. It's not a ton of people. And I'm talking at the high end, people who are doing really special product mm -hmm. and also trying to grow their businesses and really do the right thing. And it's a small, it's a relatively small group of people. There's just not, maybe against, maybe just not enough people stupid enough to, to want to do this stuff. And so it can be lonely. And you feel sometimes that you're the only one struggling with a particular problem. When I would talk to other peers, it was the biggest high I could have because I we would just you know we'd look up and three hours had gone by and we had just chatted about all kinds of common problems and um, and it was really rewarding and so Makers Alliance was my attempt to take that one step further and maybe 
make a concerted effort to create a community of like-minded makers and manufacturers. Over the course of the last year, uh, I've been hosting dinners um, in around the country with people that I respect and inviting people to dinner and a conversation and then just let it go where it goes. And uh, it's been really fun to see yeah um and you know folks like uh, mckinnon and harris and merida and nance and marmy stone and lawson and fanning and brandon ravenhill and you know some really great people um ong studio people who are doing um amazing work um and who are trying to grow their business and um, and grow it the right way, and we're just trying to create a little community to support each other in that way. And and what's sort of top of mind for this group? What are they sort of wrestling with or struggling with? Or well, in some of? ways, they're struggling with a lot of the same things that everybody is, whether you're a designer or a showroom or you know a magazine. Where are, how, what's the shifting sand here? Um, what's the distribution model of the future going to be? E-commerce is a big topic uh, for sure. Um, and, and about whether or not they should build out an e-commerce site, whether they should put pricing on their site and all of that, right? Yes. I mean, it's one of the big yes. issues that people seem to be. For sure. And so for you, you've decided that that is the way forward. Yes. And some of the folks that I've talked to in this group are kind of like, you know, want to watch and see how this goes. <laughs> so, they're, so they're a little nervous about it. And they're happy for you to sort of take the first That's right. Well, you take step. the bullet and you let us know what you let us know what it's like out there. Um, um, yeah. And, and again, every business is different. And, and, and there's such a wide variety. There's, um, you know, a number of different industries and business models represented in the Makers Alliance at the moment. Um, everybody's got a different viewpoint on that. Um, but it's everybody's very um, curious about it for sure. Yeah, I mean, it, that's one of the that's one of the other big issues that the, that the industry is is sort of struggling with, and the other, as we've talked about, is how do we continue to educate whoever is coming next as our customer, be they the designer, be they the end user, how do we continue to create? A, a market that wants this highly specialized product that that is going to be handmade that they're going to have to wait for all, all, all of those hurdles as we've talked about yeah i mean I, I think the good news is and you and i've talked about this the good news is that design is is in full bloom i mean it's it's i don't think that it has ever been more impo- design has ever been more important than it is now every restaurant or hotel or office wants to have uh, you know a, a unique design and that's good. That's good for designers. It's really mm-hmm. good for designers. That's good for us by extension. Um, it's 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 top of mind now in a way that it has never been before. Um, and so, in a lot of ways, all the challenges that the industry is going through are just they're good things. You know, they're they're born out of more desire for what we're selling or what designers are selling. Um, these challenges are born out of just more people aspiring more to to better design and and wanting good design and wanting good design right and so that's not a bad thing i know that it makes uh people in the industry a little bit nervous but it's not a bad thing if that's the source of the problem Mm. uh, or the source of the concern is just people wanting more of it does does market uncertainty so we happen to be talking on a day when the markets (laughs) saw that yes (laughs) yes. i mean does, does any of that 
uh, impact you in any way? Do, do, do you think about sort of where we are in the economic cycle or when you're thinking about your own investments? I mean, you've talked about you've just sort of taken on a big expansion. I know. I was thinking about that today as I watched the market. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, I, you know, I'm not an economist. I think the obviously the economy at the moment has been doing quite well. Mm. Most clients we talk to are gangbusters. They're busier than they've ever been. That's a good thing. Nobody has a crystal ball. Um, but again, I think no matter what, good product, good service, good business model, uh, all of that stuff wins and survives in the end. So I think that's always worth investing in, you know, um, and that's that's always been our approach. So and that's going to continue to be your. Approach. Yes. Yes. I mean, we are making some pretty big investments this year. I mean, the new factory that we have mm -hmm. across the street, which like I said is 40,000 square feet, which gives us about 160,000 square feet now in total. But this is by far the biggest investment we've made in a facility. Um, and um, but I feel very solid about it. We've, and if we were going to go into a recession next year, mm -hmm. I actually still feel good about it. Okay. Yeah. So, so even if a business were to pull back 10, 15, 20%, that wouldn't, that wouldn't have a major impact on... Well, 20% would have a major impact. Think, <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking no, no, about, I mean, Dennis? Jeez. No, I mean, it's, it's interesting um, because, I, I mean, you know, so one, one of the people that I, that I know you're a, a fan of, uh, Chris Peacock. Yeah. You know, he, he and I were talking just recently, and, and he uh, navigated sort of two sort of major recessions. And, you know, we, we sort of, we haven't had one in such a while that we, we kind of forget, yeah, right? I know. And then, but know? then also, too, I mean, and again, I'm not... I'm not a prognosticator, but everybody who owned a business in 2008 thinks of that as a recession, and that was that was an off the charts. That recession. was a global That's meltdown. Not your typical right. recession. That's not right. A little, little not problem. to say that it couldn't sure. happen again, but I also don't want to overlearn lessons from 2008 because a typical recession is a you know a quarter or two of negative GDP zero growth. or yeah. negative growth, right? Yeah. So it's. Um, survivable right mm. it's not necessarily a 25 percent drop um and now i've just completely jinxed our business <laughs> no no i mean it's uh, you know it, it, it it's interesting because it it doesn't sound like you're making dramatic changes to your distribution channel right. in, in in the short term no right? so I, that, that I, is you, not your thinking no in, in, the short in term. fact i mean that's a I, i'm glad you brought that up because again i think that for us we just stay focused on what we're doing and we stay focused on getting really good at what we're doing. Right. I always think that's a pretty solid place to be. And, and, and you've been consistently growing sort of year over year. Right. Right. And, yes. and so you feel like, again, so a slight pullback, fine. You, you don't see that anything in the near term that's going to really slow things down dramatically for you and you feel. Well, and confident. we try to say even if it did slow down, are we operating the business uh, in a way that's responsible? Are mm. we, you know, are we being good with cash? Are we um, are we protecting margins? Um, that sort of stuff. You want to make sure that yeah. obviously you can hedge against that. But I also, again, I think the bigger risk for us is to not push forward. Mm. Um, you know, the investment in the new factory, for instance, is specifically targeted to help with lead times, which is a you know is a is a challenge that we want to continue to pursue. You know, to get better at. And um, and I think if we did nothing, we aren't moving forward on that front and right. so and i think that's a bigger risk because we might have a recession next year and then in two years we're out of that recession and we're no better that's not that's not a strategy that i think is a good one so yeah. 
so I too share the optimism about design and and really good design and and in part I feel that way because the more I'm out there the more I see so many people don't even know what good design is yet still exactly right rich is great yes every time somebody says I've never heard of urban electric I said this is fantastic right right because that's just means oppor- that's opportunity Right. And to your point, anytime you see bad design, that is opportunity for good design. Exactly. And I see so much of it every day that that I'm excited about. Wait till people learn and see what really good design is. And and as you you were saying earlier, not only are so many of these interior designers just just interesting and and fun to, to work with and you learn so much from them. But when you see what a really talented interior designer can do versus whatever these sort of pre-packaged design programs right. are able to it's it's just night and day night and day and i'm i'm always always amazed at what our designers can do if you look at a room that Stephen gambrell does oh. i don't how do you even begin such a perfect example right the yes. layers and the subtleties of that room and that's not just a collection of stuff right and so I, 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 to me, that is, again, so much reason for our clients to be so bullish um, on what lies ahead because they possess incredible, unique talent that most people don't have. Yeah. I don't have it. Most people don't have it. Um, and I think that puts them in, in a good position. Yeah. And I, and I think you and I just need to buck them up a bit, and, right? And, and I, I mean, I think, this is, I think this is a very optimistic way for us to, to end the conversation, okay. right? I think we're feeling very bullish about the, the design industry. We are. Yeah. Right? And, and I think that part of the message that I want to deliver to designers at our Future of Home conference is you, you think that we're talking about all of these different companies that want to come and chip away at your business. The truth is we're showing you so many businesses that could benefit greatly from what you can help right right because they can't do uh, so many again so many of these companies that are looking at the design industry and trying to uh, you know unpack it can't do what designers can do but again it goes back to what i was saying before why are they interested in this industry because it's a it's a great space to be in yeah right um and that's again that's reason for optimism absolutely absolutely well Dave, thank you so much for thank joining you, us. Thank you, Dennis. This is yeah. fun. It's been a pleasure. We appreciate we, it. We t- we've gotten to talk, but now we got to, to, to talk on air. So uh, my guest has been Dave Dawson, the founder and CEO of Urban Electric. Thank you again for listening. If you're enjoying these conversations, I hope you'll consider sharing the podcast with a friend or heading over to the iTunes store to leave us a review. It helps others to discover the show. We love your feedback. Please give us your thoughts at podcast at businessofhome.com. Our show was produced by Fred Nicolaus and Lauren Pirelli. And I'm Dennis Scully. We'll see you next week. There you go. Um, so, so, I, so now I do see these things are going to be edited. So... Uh,